All right, good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14? Now, if you went online and saw we were in 1 Peter, and we're having you turn to 1 Corinthians 14, there's a reason for that. We are in 1 Peter. That as far as chapter 4, verse 10, where Peter talks about the gifts of the Spirit. So we use that as a justification to launch into a study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's been a while, almost 10 years, since we've actually looked at the gifts in detail. Uh, some of you may not know this, but we are a charismatic fellowship. So, you know, good that we understand what the gifts are all about. Uh, but we've looked at the lists, the two biggest ones uh, in the New Testament, both by Paul, First in 1 Corinthians 12, then Romans 12. We've looked at those. In fact, we're down really to the three last gifts, the most prominent, I think, in some ways of all of them. Uh, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. All three are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, but Paul really focuses on them in detail in chapter 14, where uh, he devotes almost the entire chapter to those three gifts. So I figured we turned to 1 Corinthians 14, which we kind of started looking at last week as we started our study on the gift of prophecy. But verse 1, we read, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, Paul said, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, last week we spent some time clarifying the difference between the gift of prophecy and the office of a prophet. The word prophet comes from a Hebrew word that literally means to bubble forth, bubble forth. But the idea is that you were speaking on behalf of another. When it's used in the Bible, it's used most often of someone being a spokesman or speaking on behalf of God. Unless, of course, they were a false prophet. Many of them claimed to speak on behalf of God, but did not. You can read Jeremiah 23. He really gets into that and really condemns those false prophets of Israel. But as we said last time, we make the mistake of thinking that prophecy is only foretelling. In other words, predicting the future. That certainly was part of it. When uh, you read the Old Testament, you see many places where God sent one of his prophets to a king or someone else, uh, telling them, usually if they didn't repent, here's what was going to happen. So a lot of it was predictive in nature, but... Uh, most of what the prophets did, whether you realize it or not, was they just spoke for God uh, when God sent them. They just simply spoke his words to his people. That's basically what they did. In other words, most of their ministry consisted not in foretelling, predicting the future, but in, as we said last time, forth-telling or speaking forth the word of God. You know, if you want to look at it like that in a very broad way then, anyone who... Um, teaches the Bible, who preaches the gospel, even a Christian who shares uh, scripture with somebody they're witnessing to, is acting in the capacity of a prophet in the sense that they're being a spokesman for God. Now, the very most broadest sense of that word. But as we talked last time, there's a difference between the office of a prophet and then the gift of prophecy. We know that when God called people to be prophets in the Old Testament, even in the New, we, we read in Ephesians 4, verse 11, Paul said that Jesus Christ appointed some in the church to these offices. He talks about uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teaching pastors, and then teachers. And these were divine offices. 
Uh, and of course, there was giftedness that went along with the offices. If you're gonna, God's going to call somebody to be a pastor who's a teacher, well, then he needs to also give them the gift of teaching, which God does. Uh, so, you know, that's just part of it. A prophet, as we said last week, spoke uh, the inspired, infallible word of God, which in the Old Testament resulted in death by stoning. If someone claimed to be a prophet of God and uh, said something that did not, just one thing that didn't come to pass, that they spoke something future will say in the name of the Lord, and it didn't come to pass, well, God said they were to be stoned because they're a false prophet. God's not guessing. He knows the future. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 to 22, you can read about that, okay? Uh, why don't you turn to 2 Peter? I want you to see this one. 2 Peter 1. So looking at the office of a prophet still, a prophet spoke the inspired and infallible word of God. Peter picks up on this. Now he's talking about the office of a prophet here in 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 20. Peter said, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. That's called inspiration. God inspired the people who wrote down his word. And uh, the word they wrote down in the original autographs or manuscripts, the ones they hand wrote were infallible, all right, infallible. Of course, as they were copied, there were some minor errors that meant really nothing with regard to doctrine or whatever that uh, crept in, but very minor compared, you know, like half of 1%. God kept his word pure down through the centuries. But those people, Moses and Isaiah and David, when they wrote, they were moved by the Holy Spirit and they, they wrote the Word of God, the infallible Word of God, that became the doctrine that we live by in the Old and then uh, in the New Testaments, there were prophets as well. So, whereas a Christian who exercises the gift of prophecy is not, somebody who exercises the gift of prophecy isn't inspired in the sense that their words are infallible, and nor do we stone them if anything they say doesn't, you know, is from the Lord. You know, I feel like the Lord told me to tell you this. So, okay, you gift of prophecy. And they tell you something that doesn't wind up happening, we don't stone them, okay? The gift of prophecy is different. Office of a prophet, uh, they spoke the infallible word of God if they were really prophets of God. But um, when it comes to people today in the body of Christ, Christians, who exercise the gift of prophecy, even though we don't look at them as speaking divine, inspired, infallible truth, of course, that doesn't mean that we just take what they say lightly, uh, that we don't hold them accountable in some way. You know, they claim to be speaking on behalf of the Lord. Well, we, uh, we need to make sure that we don't just automatically accept it or take it lightly like it's no big deal. Uh, we need to hold them accountable for what is coming out of their mouth. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29, we read, Paul said, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. So we, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But we are to judge. When somebody, and I again, I'm just kind of setting this up for something I'm going to be talking about in a moment. Paul says, when you come together as a church, and there are some who are exercising the gift of prophecy, let them speak, you know, no more than three 
and then let the others judge. Okay, judge. Well, what do we judge it with? Well, we'll talk about that. Paul said, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. In other words, if, if God's speaking to somebody else, well, you need to let the person who is at that time sharing, let them finish. Then you, in other words, chaos is not of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, maybe you've seen or been to some church services that were ultra charismatic, and uh, it was chaos. People were all talking at the same time, sometimes running around and doing whatever, gymnastics. Uh, very chaotic, very crazy. Paul said, God is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of confusion. And Paul's basically saying that uh, here. In fact, he, he goes on to say it in verse 33. But, uh, you know, he's basically calling for order. You can all share your prophecy. You can all share who, you know, those of you who have a tongue that you want to share. You can all share it, but orderly. Uh, verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of, of confusion, but of peace, as uh, in all the churches of the saints. Notice that Paul says in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets. In other words, the human spirit, the will. The will that governs when they speak, okay? Uh, the, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, God doesn't take you over, okay, uh, and speak through you against your will. Some people are they're a little crazy about these gifts. They don't really know how they work. And they're afraid of stuff like the gift of prophecy because, you know, they feel like all of a sudden they're going to be somewhere and uh, they're going to start slipping into this weird trance and their voice is going to change. You know, all of a sudden, you know, mindlessly and robotically, they're going to start speaking for God. That's not how it works. Paul says it right here. Look, if God wants to speak something through you, you have control over that. Uh, you know, it doesn't just happen. God places the words in your mind, on your heart. And by faith, you simply speak the words that God has laid on your heart. That's what exercising the gift of prophecy is all about. And Paul is telling us that those who exercise the gift of prophecy are still in control and can even refuse to speak forth what God has placed uh, on their hearts. In fact, many Christians do uh, refuse to speak uh, forth uh, something they believe, well, something on their heart. Why, why, why do they refuse to speak it forth? Is it rebellion? No. They're afraid that what is on their heart is not from God. I mean, you can understand this. There's been a lot of times where somebody has said to me, you know, God was speaking to me, but I was, at the time, I didn't realize it, and I was afraid it was just me thinking the thoughts. And I didn't want to say, well, uh, here, the Lord wants you to know something, and then I was going to share something that was not really from the Lord. I, I, so I just kept quiet, see? That's why Paul said in... Romans 12, he said, if God's given you the gift of prophecy, use it according to your what? Your faith. It takes faith to speak something that you believe God has put in your heart, and the flesh is right there, the devil's right there to whisper in your ears to tell you, you know, look, you really think that's of God? You're going to say that, and, you know, it's not of God, and boy, you're going to be in trouble with the, you know, so people say, I'm just not going to say anything, all right? But verse 3 Paul goes on to tell us the purpose of the gift of prophecy in relation to the body of Christ. This is important, guys. He says, But he who prophesies speaks edification 
and exhortation and comfort to men. Edification simply means to build up and encourage. Exhortation, to instruct, correct, or rebuke with the intent of moving a person into action. Comfort, basically to soothe, to remind that God is still on the throne, that he loves you, hasn't forsaken you, and so on. Guys, most of what is uh, said when Christians are exercising the gift of prophecy in a local church will be encouraging in nature. Not all, but most. Let me just say this. If an earthly father never corrected his children, that would be bad. Uh, It would be harmful to the child, unloving. In fact, the Bible says uh, the father who loves his children disciplines them speedily because that's part of what it means to love your child. You want to correct them. You want to get them on the right course again if they've kind of strayed. So a father that would never correct his children, well, that would produce in them rebellion probably. They become unproductive adults, maybe even criminals. That's how important it is uh, when they're young for parents to bring them up uh, with uh, God's rules and so on uh, and make sure that they uh, obey the rules of the family and, of course, especially what God has said. On the other hand, if the father was um, always on their backs, uh, quick to tell them when they messed up, but never encouraging them when they do right or tried to do right but failed, well, that wouldn't produce a close relationship either. It would make for resentment and so on. So what God does is he, he gives us a healthy ratio. One-third exhortation, two-thirds encouragement. More or less. More or less. In other words, guys, in a gathering of believers, I'm talking about spirit-filled, mature believers. Okay, I mean, Corinth was full of carnal Christians. I'm talking about a church who is... Uh, mature believers, uh, spiritual believers, when they come together and the gift of prophecy is being exercised, you can expect to hear more comforting and loving words from our Heavenly Father and fewer get-with-it prophecies. When the gift of prophecy is truly being exercised, guys, by the Holy Spirit, it's never going to be condemning. Uh, Never going to be condemning. It's never going to be something along the line, you know what, I'm sick and tired of you. I'm tired of you coming to me all the time with the same sin. Get right or I'm going to throw you out of the family. You're never going to hear stuff like that, okay? You can always tell when somebody, and maybe you, maybe you guys have um, been to a church where it's been very charismatic and, and uh, somebody has prophesied. A lot of times in ultra-charismatic churches, There are people that use the opportunity to speak on behalf of God. I'm not saying they don't think. I mean, they probably think they are speaking on behalf of God. I don't believe that many times because of what comes out of their mouth. They use this as an opportunity to kind of browbeat everybody. Uh, You know, they're, they're upset with people for how they're living maybe. And so they get up there, well, you know, thus says the Lord. They begin to bash people. That's not of God. That's not to say that. God won't be firm at times. I mean, he might rebuke once in a while, depending on what's going on. I mean, as parents, sometimes we have to take a hard line with our kids, maybe when they were growing up, and uh, maybe a, a, a gentle rebuke was in order. That doesn't mean we condemn them, though. That doesn't mean, hey, I don't love you anymore. I'm sick and tired of looking at you. You're a miserable failure. Get out of the family kind of thing. And That's not what we do. The same is true with the body of Christ. 
I mean, when you have people exercising the legitimate, valid gift of prophecy, yeah, you're going to have some of that uh, firmness, uh, you know, the exhortation. Sometimes it is, guys, let's get with it kind of a thing. But it's always more of God loving and encouraging and comforting kind of a thing. Now you say, well, can it ever be futuristic or predictive in nature, this gift of prophecy? Uh, yeah, it can be. Uh, although I think primarily, it's as Paul said in verse uh, 3, it's exhortation, edification, and comfort. But yeah, I mean, it could have an element of predicting what's coming. Now, I remember, and when Calvary Chapel first started back in the 60s, God was moving. The Spirit was being poured out. And the Jesus movement was just getting going. So God was really ramping up some of these gifts he was really working in some very specific ways, incredible ways. I remember a story that my pastor uh, told numerous times over the course of his ministry about those early days of Calvary Chapel. Well, you know, Pastor Chuck, Pastor uh, Chuck Smith, if you don't know, was my pastor, uh, but uh, he was out in California. And for 17 years, he pastored churches and they never really went anywhere. I mean, there were always churches of 100 or less, 100 people or less. And uh, he worked part-time at Alpha Beta Markets because he had to supplement his income. And it got to a point where they liked him so much, they asked him to become part of the management program. They wanted to make him a manager, which meant full-time uh, employment in this business. And Chuck was really thinking about it. He said, you know, he said, I, I 17 years serving the Lord, and nothing really was going on. My churches were always small. And uh, he said, you know, and I just felt like, well, maybe the Lord's telling me he is opening a door for me to be a Christian businessman. That, that's fine. I can serve the Lord that way. So as he's thinking about this and probably praying about it, one day he gets a phone call from somebody uh, who was involved with a church called Calvary Chapel. The church had been going out, I don't know for how many years, but they had all kinds of problems. Only 25 people uh, in this little church, and uh, a lot of problems. The pastor, in fact, had done something, had to be removed, and uh, they already closed the doors. They were so discouraged. But one of the people in the, in the church had met Chuck. In fact, uh, that person had gone to a church at one time where Chuck pastored for a short time. So they knew Chuck Smith, and they said, look, Let's try to get Pastor Chuck Smith to come down and pastor the church. And if he says no, we'll just close the doors. So they called Chuck. They got a hold of him. And they ran this by him. Interestingly, Chuck had said that he was praying about a few things. One of the things that he felt God was laying on his heart was to move back to the beach cities. Uh, like God wanted him back near the, the beaches uh, to minister in that area. He was more inland. And so they uh, proposed this thing, Chuck, please come and be our pastor, otherwise we're just going to close the doors. And So Chuck prayed about it and felt like God was in it. So he resigned from the church he was currently at, moved him and his wife uh, out to Costa Mesa. And they had their first service that Sunday. And afterward, the whole church went out for lunch. Not in those days. The whole church could go out for lunch. All right? Be a little hard today. But, you know, well, Chuck gone, but, you know. So they went out to lunch, and while they're, you know, sitting there eating, Chuck takes a napkin and starts to scribble on it. What he'd like to do to renovate the sanctuary, you know, 
move the stage and so on and so forth. When they saw that, they got so excited. They said, that's great, that's great. Let's start tomorrow. And he's like, wow, what an enthusiastic group of people. What Chuck didn't know is that a prophecy had come forth that God was going to lay it on Pastor Chuck's heart to come and take the church, and the first thing he'd want to do was remodel the sanctuary. So they were feeling pretty excited. So Chuck begins to teach. People start coming. They eventually go on the radio. Now lots of people are coming. They outgrew their facility. So they searched around and found a, uh, uh, a building uh, on Bay Street next to a, a car dealership. And it was a good deal. And so they went to the city uh, planning commission and said, well, look, um, we, we have the money to buy the building, but there's no parking. But the gentleman who owns the car dealership uh, next door said, look, you know, we're closed on Sunday. Your church can use our parking lot for parking. So they presented that to the zoning board, planning committee, and they were very encouraging. They said, look, that's a great idea. It's hard for churches to purchase enough land to park all those cars. This is a, an excellent solution. And they were all for it. In fact, they were so encouraging. Chuck came home, put the church up for sale, the one they had outgrown, and it sold immediately. Well, a couple of weeks later, the zoning department calls Chuck up again and says, you know, Chuck, we've been thinking about this. What if the dealership should ever uh, rescind the invitation to come and use the parking lot? Now we have all these cars on the street parked, and we don't want that. Uh, we've decided to reject your plan. And Chuck said, I just sold the church. Here they, they hire me as their new pastor. I sold their church off underneath them. We got no church to go to. Now we got no, you know. So he was pretty down about it and uh, didn't know what the Lord was doing. And um, let me just go back and say this, though. Right after Chuck started to be their pastor at Calvary Chapel, there was a prayer meeting that happened pretty quick. And all the church came together and they began to pray. And they were laying hands on Chuck. And a prophecy came forth. Now, you have to understand, Chuck's been a pastor for 17 years, has only pastored churches of 100 people. A prophecy came forth that God was going to bless Calvary Chapel so much, they would outgrow their facility and would have to move onto the bluff overlooking the bay. In fact, God gave to Chuck a name that meant shepherd. He said, Chuck, you're going to be the shepherd of many flocks all over the world. The church will outgrow their facility. Eventually, this church will be known around the world. Now, Chuck's sitting there, and he's going, he knows that the gift of prophecy is not inspired. Sometimes people speak out of the imagination of their own heart. They're so excited. They really believe God's laid something in their heart, but it's just of their own imagination, not, not evil, not no malice. They just get excited, and it's not really the Lord talking. It's wishful thinking talking. So Chuck's sitting there as they're praying over him, and this prophecy comes forth. He's thinking to himself, Lord, how could such a thing ever be? And honestly, kind of like Mary, when Gabriel said you're going to be going to become pregnant without any help of a man, you're going to be a mother of a Messiah, she just kind of pondered those things in her heart. Chuck said, I just kind of filed it, pondered it, but almost forgot about it. Well, here now the church is growing. And they've outgrown their facility, right? And they went to, you know, to uh, purchase this building on Bay Street. And around that time, somebody from the church came to Chuck and said, Chuck, 
there was a prophecy that, you know, we were going to outdoor our facility and have to move on to the bluff overlooking the bay. This isn't it. And Chuck said, no, wait a minute now. You know how prophecy is, gift of prophecy. You know, you, the Lord kind of lays stuff on your heart and you, you share it, but sometimes our own human thoughts get mixed in there. Look, look, look. We're going to be in this building overlooking Bay Street. Isn't that neat? She said, no, Chuck, that wasn't it. Well, that's the way it's going to have to be. And then, of course, the whole thing fell through. So Chuck went to the planning board to pick up the blueprints. And he just didn't know what was going to happen now. And as he's picking up the blueprints, the gal behind the counter says, Chuck, she says, you know, why don't you guys move in with us? Because we have a plans to build a new church. Uh, you can move in with us. And then when we move out, you can just buy our church. And Chuck said, well, where, where's your church? Well, it's the Newport uh, Lutheran Church on the bluff overlooking the bay. So Chuck moved the church into their facility for afternoon services on Sunday. He said, now if you listen to D.L. Moody, Moody said you should never have afternoon services on Sunday because people are full of beef and unbelief. It's not a good time. But they did it anyways, and God kept growing the church. Eventually, they were there two years. The Lutheran church, they never got their building project off the ground. So in two years, Calvary Chapel grew that facility. The story goes on. They eventually had to purchase a circus tent. Uh, you know, while the new facility was being built, they finally got land and so on. It's just important to understand that God will sometimes speak to us in some very specific ways. Be open to it. Be open to it. Uh, our God is a very big God. And sometimes he will lay things in our hearts where we think, Lord, how can that, how can such a thing like that be? Lord, how are you going to feed three million people in the wilderness with meat? They're tired of manna. They're ready to hang me, Moses said. And God says, don't worry. Tomorrow I will send meat into the camp. I will feed them with so much meat, it'll come out of their nostrils. And Moses said, well, how can such a thing be? And God says, Moses, is anything too hard for me? And you remember the story. The next day comes the quails, you know, flying in. Uh, and they were batting quails all day, all night, piling them up, made quail jerky. The people had so much meat, it's coming out of their nostrils. We, we have to let God be God. I understand the only infallible truth is God's word. But that doesn't mean God is, can't or won't speak to us individually or as a church about some things that affect our lives personally or our church collectively. One more thing. When the gift of prophecy is being exercised, it never deals with new revelation in the sense of new doctrine. Yeah, revelation that deals with my life personally, but not new doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6, Paul said, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless... I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. Notice how in verse 6 Paul separates revelation from the gift of prophecy. Two separate things. That's because the gift of prophecy doesn't reveal new doctrine from God. If someone back in those days was called to the office of an apostle like Paul or to the office of a prophet like Agabus, yeah, often they did speak doctrinal revelation given to them by God. But as we said last time, the offices of apostles and prophets have passed off the scene, I believe. 
or have come to an end, when God finished giving to them and speaking through them the New Testament canon of Scripture. Now, let me show you one of the ways the gift of prophecy worked or was used in the early church. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor, who's, and Paul said, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. The early church had a practice of uh, praying over somebody, laying hands on them to receive a gift or gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then they would wait for a prophecy to come forth that would tell them what gifts God had given to this person and what ministry he was calling them into. That seems to have been kind of a pattern of the early church. And that brings up something else I want to just mention, although we've talked about it before. Don't ever go out and do something just because someone who claims to be speaking for God tells you to do so. God will never speak to you through someone else about his will for your life without confirming it to you in some way directly. I think that's pretty obvious, but we need to, to say it, okay? I mean, God will often use somebody to confirm something he has been speaking to you about, something he has laid on your heart. He can bring somebody that will you know, say, I believe God wants you to be doing this or going here, and you're like, wow, I was just praying about that. That's exactly what I was praying about. So that's a confirmation. Great. God can use somebody, and often does, to get you praying about a certain course of action or a, a ministry that you weren't even thinking about. Somebody comes to you and maybe says, you know, I really believe God has been laying on my heart that you are going to be a missionary to China. And, um, you know, you weren't thinking about that. Of course, you don't say, oh, really? Well, I'll pack up tomorrow and move to China. No, you say, well, that's interesting. Let me pray about it. And eventually, if God's really calling you to China, he'll open the doors and make it clear. And, you know, he'll confirm to your heart what he wants you to do with regard to this. Okay? My point is you never just accept the word of somebody who comes to you and says, look, God wants you to do this, this, and that, so get going. No, you've got to pray about it. He'll never direct your life solely through the somebody else. He'll speak to you directly as you seek him to confirm uh, if this is really from him. Once again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, guys, we read, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. Many Christians in the Word of Faith churches tell us that we should never challenge or judge someone's words when they are prophesying. They say to do so is, listen, touching the Lord's anointed. And that's something we must never do. And they'll point to scriptures like Psalm 105, verse 15, where the psalmist said, you know, God speaking, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And of course, in 1 Samuel 26, verse 11, David, who could have killed Saul, would not lay hands on him. He said in verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But hear me. While it's true that David didn't physically touch the Lord's anointed, Saul, he could have killed him on two different occasions. It's true that David said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed in the sense that I'm not going to kill him. That didn't mean he didn't verbally rebuke the Lord's anointed. There were a couple of different times where David rebuked Saul for listening to people who told him that David was out to kill him. And David said, King Saul, I could have killed you. 
I didn't because I don't mean no harm to you. I, I have no uh, animosity in my heart towards you. Why are you listening to people who are telling you things like this? Why are you chasing me like a partridge over the desert? I, I mean you no harm. See, today I could have killed you. I didn't. And Saul repented for a while and got crazy again and went after him. But David verbally rebuked the Lord's anointed. He didn't physically touch him. Those preachers and teachers today that are telling us not to hold those who claim to be speaking on behalf of God accountable for what they're saying by comparing it, what they're saying to Scripture, uh, that is not only unwise, it's, it's unbiblical. In fact, it's dangerous. It's unbiblical and it's dangerous. Because when you don't hold somebody accountable, if they're claiming to be speaking on behalf of God, and you are not holding up what they are saying next to what God has already revealed in His Word, because somehow that's touching the Lord's anointed, we must never do that. Well, not only is it unbiblical, it's dangerous and has been the reason why so much false teaching has crept into the church. The church has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS. Of course, that is the disease physically that once it enters the body, the first thing it does is shut down your defense mechanisms. AIDS doesn't kill you. You wind up dying of pneumonia or something else because it's shut down your body's ability to, to ward off intruders you know, viruses and things. When people tell other Christians or churches that we should never test, we should never challenge, we should always just blindly accept anyone who says, thus says the Lord, you shut down the body of Christ's defense mechanism. And now we're open and susceptible to any wind of doctrine coming in and making us very sick and often killing uh, church. Look, we are commanded in Scripture to judge what's being said on behalf of God, whether it's coming from the pulpit or the pew. We are commanded to be Bereans, right? The Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Acts 17, 11, because they listened to what Paul had to say, but went home and checked it against the Word of God to make sure he was telling them the truth. Paul also said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, we are to test all things, test all teachings, all doctrines, and hold firm to those that are good, or in other words, line up with God's word. So first of all, we test or judge whether a prophecy is from God by holding it up next to what God has already re revealed in his word. That's obvious, but that's basic. Number two, another way to test if someone is really speaking on behalf of God is to what? Wait and see, okay? Wait and see. I mean, if a person comes forth on numerous occasions, claiming that God has spoken to them about something. And these things come to pass, you know. After a while, you start thinking, well, I guess this person really is speaking on behalf of God. However, if somebody is, comes forth and they're always telling you that God said this and here's what's coming or whatever, and, and none of it ever happens, well, you can pretty much write them off as not being somebody that's speaking on behalf of God. And we should do that. We have to be careful. We have to make sure that we're discerning. Again, not everyone who says, thus says the Lord, is really speaking on behalf of God. And uh, don't you know, many people will try to get their weird ideas and goofy doctrines accepted in churches by attaching God's name to them. So be discerning. All right, well, that brings us to the gift of tongues. And for this, let's read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 2 to 5, where Paul says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. 
But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, there's a lot there. We'll have to unpack some of it next week and possibly conclude our study uh, in the gifts of the Spirit. But what is the gift of tongues? A lot of Christians don't know, uh, don't care what it is, right? Uh, but the gift of tongues is actually a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's also the most controversial. And guys, wherever there is controversy, there is often division. And boy, is that true with this gift. We see many churches and Christians dividing over the gifts in general, but I think the gift of tongues in particular has really divided a lot of Christians against each other and churches and so on. And that's really sad because we said to start this study, Paul the Apostle began his whole section on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 1, with these words, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorance breeds controversy, and again, controversy breeds division. And that is not what God wants. He wants unity. And oftentimes, if churches would just take the time to study a little bit, not bring their biases to the table where they condemn something before they even know what the Bible is really teaching uh, on the subject. Uh, we'd be a lot better off, a lot better off. But um, that's why, as we said, talked about last week, right in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts between chapters 12 and 14, he inserts 1 Corinthians 13, a whole chapter on God's love, as a balance, okay? Gifts are important. Love is the most important. So don't divide over the gifts. Don't fight. Don't say, well, because your church believes in tongues and our church doesn't, I can't have fellowship with you. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. These are non-essential things. You don't have to speak in tongues to go to heaven. So, you know, why are churches dividing over these things? Now, what is the gift of tongues? Stay with me. Speaking in tongues is the supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit to communicate to God in a language you never learned and do not understand. Okay? Let me say it again. The gift of tongues is the ability to communicate through the Spirit, is the ability to communicate to God in a language you've never learned and do not understand. It can be a modern language or dialect that is spoken somewhere in the world today. It could be some ancient language or dialect that has long since died out along with the culture that spoke it. Or it can even be a heavenly language. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. The Greek word most often used in the New Testament for tongues is the word glossolalia, which comes from two Greek words, glossa, which means tongue, and lalao, which means to speak. So the word glossolalia literally means to speak in tongues or actually to speak in languages, which again could be earthly or heavenly. This phenomenon first took place on the day of Pentecost. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, the uh, disciples, the apostles, were in an upper room in Jerusalem. 
They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There are two manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are being poured out on the disciples here. One is visible and the other is audible. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind and they saw the tongues of fire that appeared over each of their heads. These two manifestations, guys, were never repeated again. When someone was filled with the Holy Spirit, they were unique to the day of Pentecost because Pentecost was a unique day, a unique time in and of itself. On Pentecost, the church was born, the church age began, and God did something very dramatic and supernatural to let everyone know something important, something uh, significant has just started. And of course, as I said, it would be the church age. So the rushing wind, the tongues of fire, that was unique for that time, for that day. But what is mentioned in verse 4 that is repeated constantly in the book of Acts is the phrase, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that has happened, well, it happened numerous times in the book of Acts after Pentecost. It still happens today. In fact, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek is be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. This was the important thing, being filled with the Spirit, that happened back then and continues to this day. The Spirit had been poured out on the church and made available to all of God's people. Turn to Acts 2. Verse 17, so this phenomenon has just happened. All these disciples that are in town for the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year, so pilgrims came from all over the known world to Jerusalem for these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles in the fall. Here we have pilgrims all over the known world. They're in town, and they hear the mighty rushing wind, they run to the place where the sound seems to be headed towards. They see the disciples with the cloven tongues of fire above their heads. They're all speaking in tongues. We'll talk about that more in a second. People are like, what's going on? Peter stands up and gives the first spirit-filled message of the church age. He starts out by quoting Joel. I'll let you read that in your own, Joel 2. But Peter, Acts 2.17, quoting from Joel, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Can anyone tell me when the last days officially began? We believe we're in the last days now, aren't we? Do you know when they officially began? Well, that's with the coming of Christ. Hebrews chapter um, 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the last days begin with the first coming of Christ. They will culminate with the second coming. And at that time, another new age is going to begin. Church age, Pentecost. When Jesus returns, a new age of the millennial kingdom will take place. But listen, God says, you know, in the last days, the days that my son comes, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. The last days, guys, don't don't miss this. The last days were going to be commemorated with, a, with an outpouring of God's Spirit, which would include the gifts of the Spirit, right? Prophecy would be one of those gifts. The last days conclude when? When the Lord returns. I don't see anything in my Bible that says these gifts will not continue all the way until the last days are finished at the second coming. So those who are cessationists, those who believe these gifts were only around to the end of the first century, you know what? I've heard the cases for that. They're, they present their case. To me, they're weak. Uh, it's obvious from studying this that this outpouring of the Spirit would be in, in the gifts that accompanied it. As Peter said when he finished well, our chapter 2 by preaching that message, he said, this gift is for you, your children, and for as many as the Lord our God will call, which means all who are saved. All who are saved would be the recipients of these throughout the church age, throughout the last days. So guys, something significant has happened now. And don't forget, think of the Old Testament saints. The Spirit of God came upon some of them at different times for a certain length of time, and then would leave. David prayed, uh, oh, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. Because in those days, uh, like with Samson, remember Samson? I mean, God had totally anointed this man's life, gave him great physical strength to, to destroy the enemies of God. But he didn't walk in purity and holiness. He kept tempting uh, the Lord in the sense where he uh, kept seeing this Philistine gal. And uh, you remember the story, how she was trying to find out the secret of his strength so that the Philistines could conquer him and take him captive. And uh, he kept lying to her, lying to her. And uh, he was playing games. He, he didn't take it seriously. And finally, it says at one point, he awoke from his nap and she had done something to him that he said would take away his power. Of course, it wasn't that. And so he woke up, and she said, the Philistines, the Philistines stand in their hair, you know, and I will get up as, other, as at other times, you know. And he started to get up, and, it says, and not realizing the Spirit of God had left him. This is the problem back in the Old Covenant. The Spirit of God was given to those people that served God, and sometimes was removed from them for not being faithful or whatever. In the New Covenant, it's not that way. Now, let me not get too ahead of myself. Let me just say this. In the New Covenant, Jesus said, when the Spirit of God is poured out on God's people, He will abide with you, He said, for how long? Forever. John 14, 16. So in the Old Covenant, temporarily would come on people, but would be removed oftentimes. In the New Covenant, once the Spirit of God was poured out, Jesus said, He will abide with you forever. Now it says here in verse 4 of Acts 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, listen, as the Spirit gave them utterance. It says they began to speak in languages they never learned. As the Spirit gave them utterance or as the Spirit gave them the ability and prompted them. Now that's an important point, okay? 
In other words, the Holy Spirit, again, didn't just take them over, where they became like helpless puppets that he then spoke through against their will. This is, where, this is why a lot of people... Um, we're going to have more to say about tongues next week. There's a lot here, and, and please, come on back, because there's, there's some incredible things that we can't get to tonight. But there's a lot of folks who are afraid of the gift of tongues. Uh, I believe everybody could have the gift of tongues. I'll, I'll talk more about that next week. But there's a lot of people that don't have it. Why? Because they're terrified of it. They, they imagine that they're going to be, you know, uh, in the local uh, grocery store, you know, checking out with their milk and bananas, and suddenly the Spirit of God's going to come upon them, and they're going to start uh, wigging out and speaking all kinds of gibberish. And it just freaks them out to think that way, and I don't want that, you know, and so they, they don't get it. But listen, anything the Lord is giving, don't you know, is a blessing? Never to be afraid of. So the Spirit of God began to prompt them, gave them the ability to speak in language that they never learned, didn't understand, and would prompt them to just speak by faith, but never against their will. What is the purpose of the gift of tongues? And I'll just bring a couple of things out, and then we'll close and pick it up next time. What is the purpose of the gift of tongues? Now, don't miss this. There's a lot, again, a lot of confusion. Tongues is both a prayer language and a praise language. Both are directed at God, not men. Verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue, listen, does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. In charismatic circles, certain traditions have developed. Remember we talked about this several weeks ago? The problem with a lot of charismatic churches is they learn to practice the gifts not by going to the scriptures to find out what God has said about the gifts, but they watch each other. So parents pass down to their children these misconceptions and abuses because the kids are looking at their parents and, and learning how to practice these gifts from their parents who often have it wrong. And in charismatic circles, certain traditions have developed and spiritual phrases have been coined that are really not biblical, such as the phrase, a message in tongues, a message in tongues. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a phrase like that because God never listens. He, listen, he never speaks to his church by giving us messages in tongues. And yet so often in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, when somebody speaks in tongues, Somebody will stand up and give the supposed interpretation, and often it goes like this. My little children, hearken to my voice. Or, thus says the Lord to his church. Now, if somebody speaks in tongues, and somebody gets up to interpret, and it starts like that, God speaking to the church, it is not an interpretation of tongues. It might be the gift of prophecy being exercised, because that in prophecy, God does speak to his church. Words of utter exhortation, edification, comfort. I'm just telling you that there's a lot of misconceptions, especially with tongues, and part of it is that churches, charismatic fellowships, think that God speaks to them through tongues. That's not true. Tongues is not God speaking to us. Tongues is us speaking to God. Praise, prayer, okay? This idea that God gives messages through tongues again, languages that we've never learned, to others, has led non-charismatic Christians to say that, look, and I've heard this before, okay? 
You charismatics say that God is giving tongues, languages people have never learned. All right, well, if that's true, he's still giving the gift of tongues to Christians, and why doesn't he give it to the missionaries? So they won't have to spend years learning the languages of the people they're being sent to to preach the gospel to. The problem with non-charismatics and some charismatics is that both of them are demonstrating an ignorance as to what the gift of tongues is all about and its purpose in the lives of Christians. Again, the gift of tongues, first of all, is uh, given for the purpose of prayer. It's a prayer language. Look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 14. I challenge you to read chapter 14 several times before our next study. Uh, it'll become a lot clearer as you read what God has said. Now that we're kind of touching on this, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14, Paul said, If I pray in a tongue, that just means in a language, I don't know. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. But notice he said, if I pray in a tongue. Many would say, well, how can praying in a language I, I don't understand be useful in prayer? I mean, if I don't know what I'm saying, how can I know what I'm praying for? Well, that's kind of the point. Because sometimes we don't know what we should pray for in a given situation. Didn't Paul talk about this in Romans 8, verse 26? He said, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I don't believe he's talking about tongues right there. This is a little different. But the principle is the same. We don't know what to pray for in a given situation. Maybe you haven't seen somebody in years that you used to hang out with when you were in high school, maybe, or college. It's been 20 years that you haven't seen this person. And all of a sudden, the Lord starts laying them on your heart really heavy to pray for them. You don't know what to pray for. So you pray in tongues. Because the Holy Spirit knows what they're going through. The Holy Spirit knows what they need prayer for. So by yielding yourself as an instrument of the Holy Spirit and allowing him to pray through you, you know that what's being prayed for is exactly what that person needs because the Spirit of God knows what they need, of course. Now, someone at this point would say, well then, if praying in tongues is perfect because it comes from the Holy Spirit, who knows exactly what uh, needs to be prayed for in a person's life in a given situation, then why don't we just pray in tongues all the time? Because then I would never know when God answered my prayers, which would mean I would never be built up in my prayer life. Doesn't answered prayers build your prayer? Doesn't it kind of build you up? You're praying, and then all of a sudden God answers, and it's pretty dramatic. Doesn't that kind of encourage you to pray more? Doesn't that build your prayer life up? That wouldn't happen if you didn't know, if you didn't ever pray with understanding. I mean, if you always prayed and thought, sure, it's a great way to pray. But you're never going to be edified because you don't know what you're praying. And beside that, Paul said, look, he said in Philippians 4, verse 6, don't worry about anything. and said, pray about everything and don't forget to thank God for his answers. Well, if you're praying in tongues, you don't know what you're praying for. It's good because the Spirit is praying through you. But how are you going to thank God for answered prayer when you don't even know what you prayed for or that the prayer was answered? What is the remedy? Well, Paul had it in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 14, he said, what is the conclusion then? 
I will pray with the Spirit. I'll pray in tongues. And I will also pray with the understanding. In other words, I'll pray normal prayers that I understand because I'm speaking my own language. So first of all, the gift of tongues is for the purpose of prayer. It's a prayer language. Secondly, the gift of tongues is for the purpose of praise. It is a praise language. As we bring this to a close, go back to Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verse 4. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, as we just saw at Pentecost. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Yes, because they were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And when this sound occurred, see, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. I mean, it was like a hurricane, but, you know, no patio furniture was being thrown around, you know. No, none of the kids' volleyballs and stuff were being blown. They heard this like a, like a again, a hurricane-type sound. So they ran to where it sounded like it was kind of moving towards. Verse 6, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them, these apostles and disciples, speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the what? The wonderful works of God. What were they doing? They were praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. It's important to understand that these tongues were not used to preach the gospel. As some think, well, and that's usually a kind of a slam against those of us who are charismatic by people who think it's ludicrous to even think that there's a gift where you can speak a language you've never learned and don't understand. Now, I got some stories next time. I wanted to save them because I want you, I want you to come back, okay? I got some stories next time that will blow your socks off about the gift of tongues, okay? But it's important to understand that these tongues were not used to preach the gospel. Uh, they were languages directed at God for the purpose of praise, and we saw earlier prayer. After the crowd said, what does this mean? Or in other words, what's going on here? We hear all these people speaking in our own native languages. These are Galileans. How are they, how are they speaking all these dialects of places we're from, right? What does this mean? Peter then stood up and preached the gospel to them, listen, in a language he knew and they knew, probably Greek or Aramaic, he didn't keep speaking in tongues, giving the gospel in their native languages. Peter stood up. He said, men and brethren, basically these men are not drunk like you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. He quotes the prophecy in Joel. And then he begins to give them this sermon about what had happened and how they were in the last days. It was all prophesied, but he spoke to them in a language they all knew, a common language that Peter understood and preached the gospel in. Go back to 1 Corinthians 14. We'll close. Verse 14. 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit. I'll pray in tongues. And I will also pray with the understanding. In other words, I'll pray with, in my own native language. I will sing with the spirit. And I will also sing with the understanding. Now, see it there? He's talking about praying and praising. He says, I'm going to do both in the spirit and both in a language I know. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, in other words, if you bless somebody speaking in tongues, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say? In other words, we'll get into this more next time. That's why Paul said tongues is a great gift, but it really is for your personal devotional life, even though God did something unique here in Acts 2. But prophecy is for the whole church. When I exercise the gift of tongues, I am praying to God. I am praising God. Of course, I need to do that also with understanding because, you know, again, I don't know if my prayers are being answered if I'm only praying in tongues. But Paul says, look, when you're in a church setting and you're speaking in tongues, of course, you're being blessed because you feel the Spirit moving. But nobody else can say amen. You're giving of thanks. You're praising God. You know, but, but they can't say amen because they don't know what you're saying. Okay. He who occupies the place of the uninformed, how, you know, how can he say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So we'll leave it there, and we'll pick it up next time, and uh, hopefully uh, end our study in uh, the gifts of the Spirit. But <laughs> I've saved, in many ways, the best for last, because this gift is so misunderstood, so maligned, but it's a gift that I believe every Christian could have. Now, I don't say that with any other gift. And by the way, it's the only gift of the Spirit you can exercise at will. Because why? You can pray and praise God anytime you want. You can't prophesy anytime you want. You can't work a, a miracle anytime you want if God gives you those gifts. But if God gives you the gift of tongues, you can use it anytime you want. You want because it's a devotional gift for you, your devotional life. So we'll look at that more next time. And there are some incredible stories that come out of, well, the history of Calvary Chapel. And there's many other stories in different charismatic churches that have their own stories. But I, I think that hopefully when we're done, you'll at least go back into your bedroom at night and pray, God, if you're still given this gift, and I believe you are now, I don't want to be afraid of it. And uh, if it's going to help me to draw close to you, will you please give it to me? After a study we did many, many years ago in my Aunt Marlene's kitchen, where our church started, we're going back 36 years, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit one night. We talked about the gift of tongues, not to be afraid of it. If the Holy Spirit gives you something or wants to give you something, never to be afraid of it. And it's a gift that will help you draw close to God. After we all left, my aunt, as she was laying in her bed, was thinking about all that. And she just prayed a simple prayer. God, if this gift will help me to draw close to you, and I'll be able to praise you better and pray to you more, uh, you know, better. I want it. And she felt like the Spirit of God just came upon her. And she felt prompted to just start to speak. And suddenly, all of a sudden, here comes her praise language, her prayer language. The gift, God had given her the gift of tongues. 
She was a most incredible experience. She didn't feel like God took over. She didn't feel like God was forcing. The Spirit of God came upon her, and she felt this just impression to just speak out. Start praising God. All of a sudden, this language that she didn't know what she was saying, and be careful. Satan is right there to say, are you really think you're speaking another a language you've never learned? And so he sows doubt, and a lot of Christians stop using their gift, gift of tongues, because they're convinced, ah, it's just gibberish. I experienced that. So I'm watching a documentary. I forgot exactly where these folks were from. But it was like in Africa or something. And uh, they were talking to some of the people in this tribe. And you could hear them. Uh, some of them didn't know English, so, so they spoke in their own tongue, and then somebody interpreted it. And as this person began to speak in this native tongue, I thought, that's my prayer language. Oh, my God. That's it. It's a pretty incredible experience, you know, to actually hear somebody from a different country say something, and you go, that's my prayer language. So come on back. Whet your appetite. We'll talk some more about this. Father, we thank you for your good gifts. Every good and perfect gift, James tells us, comes down from the Father of lights. And you know, we should never fear what you want to give us. Lord, make us more open to everything you want to give us and do through us. And forgive us, Lord, for, I don't know, being afraid, I guess, to give ourselves to you fully, that you might give to us everything you fully want to give us and use us as fully as you want to. Lord, I pray that you would give Calvary Elk Grove all the gifts of your Holy Spirit, but they would only be exercised orderly. But most of all, Lord, we pray that agape love, your love, would be poured into our church, which is more valuable than any gift of the Spirit, as important as they are. Lord, if it comes down to giving us spiritual gifts or agape love, we'll take the love every time. But we pray for both. And Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.